Thank you very much, Angie and Carly, for being with us today. Are you happy to introduce yourself for our audience? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess I'll get the party started. I beat you to the punch, Andy. <laughs> um, you know, um, my, my name is Carly and I grew up in the States and then at one point in my life I ended up moving to the UK. So I'm London based and uh, yeah, so I, you know, with me, I suppose um, I always done lots of different things in my life, so on and so forth. And, you know, I'm, I'm generally like to do things kind of quite randomly. Um, but something that just sort of randomly happened, you know, to me was that I ended up getting breast cancer. Um, so I guess it would be part of my personality and who I am or what have you. But um, yeah, I grew up in the States. I was just a typical mom. Um, you know, I just had a baby after I was diagnosed or what have you. And yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I'll share as I go along, actually. But about me, I'm easygoing, fun, and like to try new things. That would sum me up in a nutshell. <laughs> Great, thank you. Okay. What about you, Carly? Uh, Andrew, sorry. I'm uh, also from the States. Well, actually, I was born in Haiti, but I grew up uh, in New York. And um, Carly and I met um, in Boston. Um, that's, that's how we know each other uh, back in 2004. Uh, like Carly, um, was diagnosed uh, with uh, lung cancer. And... Um, that was recently in May of 2019. So uh, when I was diagnosed, Carly was like one of the only friends I had that I knew had cancer. So she was like one of the first people I called and basically to <laughs> tell her, you know, like, okay, I have it and like, you know, I need your help. So, but anyway, we will, we'll talk more about that, I guess, um, throughout the podcast, but that's a little bit about me in a nutshell. Oh yes, and I live in, in Switzerland. Um, so yeah, both Carly and I are, are expats from, from the States living in different countries. Really interesting. And also just one, uh, just a, a question. So what's your background professionally? I'm an English teacher. Um, actually, I did my master's in London. And um, yeah, Carly and I hooked up um, while we were in London, well, I was in London um, a couple times. So I teach English. Um, I've taught for the UN and for like different private schools and stuff. And also I used to um, make uh, natural hair products and, and skin products. I had a company called The Heroine. So um, that's, that's my profession. Okay. Yeah, um, my background is sort of, um, I used to work in the nonprofit sector, I um, actually work for a social enterprise now, but I've always dealt with sort of mentoring, whether it be with youth in foster care or, or businesses at the moment. Um, but yeah, generally business sort of nonprofit sort of social enterprise type of work. All right, great. So I was just asking that because obviously you are not just your diagnosis. So you're, uh, you're mothers and you're a professional woman. And uh, I'm really going, I'm re it's really interesting for me to see then as, as we go along with this discussion, what impact that the, the diagnosis has had on your career and maybe on sort of, um, sort of, yes, on your career, on your professional lives, and if it has changed anything, or if it actually uh, made you want to double up, and so, yeah, so it's going to be interesting to talk about that a bit, um, but to go back with your diagnosis, so Carly, you're in London, and Angie, yeah. you're in Switzerland, what was the, let's say, pathway before the diagnosis, how long did it take to be diagnosed and how, what, yes, what was the, the process like in those two different countries with two very different health system? Because just to double check, Carly, did you go through NHS or was it private? And, and same for you, Angie. 
Um, well, I am, I go, I started off in the NHS, um, then I went private and I kind of go back and forth as, as when I need to at the moment. Um, so do you want me to go first, Andrew, or do you want to go? Okay, yeah. um, okay I'll, I'll carry on then, um, everyone. Um, but anyhow, um, I think the process for me was, is, was dragged out a bit, actually. Not as long as Angie, though, but long enough, I thought, as, you know, going through that experience. But anyhow, um, it was a bank holiday. You know, a bank, a bank holiday is like, you know, it's a day off. <laughs> so it was May 1st, actually. And, and, and sadly enough, or I should say funny enough now, actually, it was the same day that my aunt had passed away. So she had colon cancer and she passed away at the age of 38. And I was 38 at the time. So I was like, ooh. But anyhow, both my girls um, were terrible sleepers. So I had a nine-month-old or eight-month-old at the time. And um a daughter that was three and a half, they were terrible sleepers. So I was downstairs with the baby and um, the older daughter came down and, you know, sitting on the sofa with them, trying to get everybody to sleep. One of them fell asleep. So I was going to take the other one up uh, upstairs and um, sort of the elder one sort of grabbed me as I was getting up. So she touched my lump and I hadn't noticed it. It was there or what have you. And, um, you know, uh, that was a lump for me. So because that was a particular day, it was the day that my aunt had passed away. I said, hmm, I wonder what this is all about. Then I kept playing with it for a bit and so on and so forth. And then I called the GP um, after the bank holiday. So I called on the Tuesday, I believe. And they could have seen me on the Wednesday, but I had something going on with the children. So I believe I went in on the Friday. Um, and, you know, the doctor said, oh, we don't really think it's anything um, because most breast cancer lumps tend to be they tend not to move or what have you. And this one did or what have you. But my doctor was brilliant. And she said, you know what, let me just refer you just in case it's probably nothing. But let me just refer you on. It's what I have to do. Because there's a nice guideline that says, you know, you have to be referred within two week time frame, you know, with symptoms of, you know, various cancers and so on and so forth. Um, so I was really, really lucky in that aspect. Actually, I had a really good doctor. I think she retired now or what have you. Um, so I got the letter letter in the post. I think it was, you know, two weeks later. It did come on time or what have you. And I had my appointment. I think it was the next week, Friday. And this is where it got to be a bit tricky for me. Um, so I went into the breast clinic. And um, in the UK, they have this uh, clinic. And they give mammograms to women when they turn the age of 50 or what have you. So you do get checked, which I think is a brilliant, brilliant thing. Um, I think the challenge with that, though, is it's just overbooked or subscribed. It's just one of those situations where you wait a long time. So I hadn't really planned for a, a whole waiting day experience. Um, obviously, as a mom with a baby and small children, I was just like, hmm, what do I do? You know, <laughs> anyway, my, and I didn't go into the hospital with any of my children that day. But anyway, um, yeah, I sort of I've wait, I waited for a long time, probably about an hour or so, and I as I was waiting, I was sitting next to a lady that had had breast cancer and she was just sharing her experience with me. And I was nearly in tears before I saw the doctor. So I was like, oh my goodness, what am I doing? And anyhow, I went to go see the doctor. And funny enough, that I get there and the doctor goes to me, oh, how long have you been waiting for? And I said, oh, I'm Carly, by the way. Um, and he goes, uh, I go, oh, just um, about an hour or so, something like that. He goes, I've not had any patients in the last hour. What is going on here? So he stormed out of the room to tell off the receptionist. <laughs> And then, um, and then eventually he came back in and he's like, right, okay, you know, let me examine you. So he examined me, so on and so forth. And he, he gave me the paperwork for um, the, the, I guess it would be ultrasound, mammogram, that sort of a thing or what have you. So you have to have the, the paperwork through the computer they do, but you need this other paperwork because they need to know the exact location. 
or what have you. So at that point I hadn't eaten because I sat there for so long and I was really nervous and just distraught from the lady telling me her story or what have you. So I just wanted to go to the toilet. I wanted to get a coffee, but I thought, oh, if I get a coffee, then I'll probably be way behind because the queue is too long. So I was like, let me just get to the toilet, whatever, so on and so forth. So I go to the toilet and I lost the paperwork. <laughs> okay. So I said, oh gosh, what am I going to do? So I go to the ultrasound desk or the, you know, the reception. I say, oh yeah, I'm here for a mammogram. Um, but I've lost the paperwork that the doctor gave me. What can I do? You know, can you still see me? I go, surely it must be in the computer. She goes, oh no, I can't. She goes, you got to go back to the breast clinic, get the paperwork and then come back down. So lo and behold, I had to go. This is me having not eaten. You know, I needed a coffee. I was desperate at this stage to go back to the, the breast clinic, get the paperwork or what have you. So I see, I have to go and see the same doctor. So I get the receptionist. He tells me off throughout the process you know, I was just about in tears. And then eventually I go back down to the, um, I go back down to get, you know, go through the mammogram or what have you. So because they were running late, so because there's so many people and it's oversubscribed, they were running late. So generally it's supposed to be like a one-stop shop where you get all your testing done in one day, you get your results and that's that. But in this case, you know, it wasn't going to happen. So I was able to get the mammogram. Um, and I believe at that time, the mammogram lady did know that I had something that was abnormal or what have you, but obviously they don't say anything. And then I had to go back the following week um, to get an ultrasound because, you know, bank holidays, delays, so on and so forth. And then after that, I think there was a, maybe a two, it was either one or two weeks after that, I had to go back for the results. Um, so then, you know, so it was a longer wait. So it's supposed to be a one-stop shop where you go in, you figure out what your problem is, you're diagnosed on the day. Um, but for me, you know, I started off with this journey, uh, I guess it would be May 1st. I found the lump. I went to the doctor on that Friday and I was diagnosed on June 3rd. Um, okay. you know, at that stage, it's in my lymph nodes, you know, I'm not saying that could have been prevented, but you know, yeah. um, they could, they definitely could see that it was in my lymph nodes at the biopsy stage. So there was no way they could speed up the results. Obviously they didn't tell me that, but they could see it, you know? Um, and yeah, that's kind of like my diagnosis sort of stage or what have you. So it took about a month for me, um, from, from start to completion or what have you. Do you want me to carry on or do should we go with Angie and then? Yes, let's go with yeah. Angie to see how it was for her. Her story is a bit longer, a lot longer, actually. So mine is pretty simplified compared to Andy's. <laughs> I'll, I'll, try, I'll try and keep it quick, but mine um, started with a cough um, that I noticed. I mean, I probably was coughing even before I, I noticed. But um, we, my family and I had just moved back from New York. We were living in New York, and then we moved uh, back to Geneva, Switzerland. And um, this was around August, September, and I... Um, you know, I was coughing and my kids were coughing too. So I just thought like it was a, a cough that I, I um, got from them because, you know, kids are always sick at crash and school and stuff. And then my cough just wouldn't go away. And so then I kept going to the doctors. They kept giving me antibiotics, um, inhalers, um, all these things. And it was just getting worse. And I, was, I wasn't going to sleep because um, I was just like literally coughing up a lung, like the expression says. And it wasn't until um, February um, that I started coughing up blood. And then I was like, okay, this is, this is not normal. Um, I need to go see a specialist. So I went um, to go see an ear, nose, and throat specialist. And the other reason why I, I wanted to go was because we were planning to go to Cuba for the February break. So I was like, okay, I'll just see the specialist. He'll give me some antibiotics or whatever. And then we can go to Cuba. And so um, I went and he 
told me like I he performed like allergy tests and he said like okay maybe I'm allergic to like certain trees or whatever but um you know because I'm I he just felt like I was coughing throughout the whole um um uh, procedure he was like okay let's go get you um a scan just to make sure that you know there's nothing going on there so I went to get the scan and then they saw like all these white spots on my lungs and they were like oh um you know this is strange we're gonna have to go to a pulmonologist <clears throat> because you know we think um you might have tuberculosis so um my husband was um traveling at that moment so i called them and i told them like yeah um you know they, they think i have tuberculosis but like that's weird like you know i was born in haiti but i didn't grow up there i grew up in new york um so i'm thinking okay you know hopefully it's not tuberculosis because then you know we can't go on our trip but you know, if it is, then it's a process of a matter of like being quarantined, I guess, and dealt with. So um, I we went to the pulmonologist. Um, they did this CAT, uh, the CT scan, and then um, the, yeah, he said like, yeah, oh yeah, it's definitely tuberculosis. Um, you're gonna have to go. We're gonna have to admit you to the ER and uh, get you quarantined. So I go to the ER. I'm quarantined for like five, six days. Um, no one can see me. I'm like in a, you know, and if they can, it's in a mask and they have my whole family tested. And the whole time I'm thinking like, this is like, I didn't have tuberculosis. This is like strange. Um, anyway, so they, they rule it out and I'm still getting sick and they're like, okay, it's not tuberculosis, but we still have to, um, have you stay here so we can figure out what it is. And then, you know, then they started saying, you know, if somebody looked at this, they would think, they might think that it was cancer, but in, we know in your case, it's not because, you know, you don't smoke, you're 37, um, you're healthy, you're young. This is not the case, but we have to figure out what it is. So that, you know, they test me for like hepatitis C, Legionnaire's disease. Then I get diagnosed for um, pulmonary sarcoidosis. Then they do like a biopsy and they find uh, oils in my lungs. So like lip lipids. And so they say, um, they ask me what I do and I tell them like I'm an English teacher, but I also make uh, natural products with essential oils and stuff. And they're like, ah, aha, that's it. It's because you've been inhaling these oils um, that have gotten into your um, like microphages, have gotten into your, your lungs. And this is why you have a, a rare case of diploid pneumonia. And so, um, you know, there's no real treatment for that, but uh, you know, we can give you steroids to help and, and prednisone to help stop um, the coughing and, you know, we'll just, um, so for now, just don't use any oils, like don't use any creams, don't do any. And I'm like, okay, for a black woman, this is like something impossible that you have to like not put any like lotion or oils or anything. But anyway, so I, I, you know, I followed the directions. I, I didn't, I just used water for, you know, two months, but it was just, and then this time I was still going in and out of the hospital because at, at this point now I was, I had to have an oxygen tank with me 24 seven because um, I couldn't go up and down the stairs. I was always out of breath. I had lost 10 kilos in um, a span of like a month and a half. I was always tired. You know, I, I had like a low grade fever all the time and um, it was just not getting any better. And so then um, they're still like puzzled as to like why I'm, you know, why I'm, I'm getting worse. And then um, it wasn't until um, at this point, you know, I've had like my mom come and stay with me for a month and my sister and people like family members are coming because I'm just like so sick. And then they, um, in, in May, I, um, I had like a pleural effusion. So basically they did a, a scan and they saw that I had fluid all like in both of my lungs. And they were like, okay, this is, um, this is a problem. Like, you know, you, you're not supposed to, to have this, um, 
let's go. They told me to, to go home and come back in six days so that I could be admitted and, um, you know, they could deal with this. And I'm thinking, my mom, you know, at this point, she's like, okay, no, no, I'm going to take you to New York because, you know, they're just having a laugh. This is like, they need to take your case more seriously. Something's obviously wrong. Um, and I don't like how, you know, they're not taking it seriously. So I call my friend who's a doctor in the Bronx and she's like, there's no way you can get on this plane because if you get on the plane with um, fluid in your lungs, like it could be life-threatening, you need to go to the ER. Um, so I went actually to my, an osteopath that I was seeing and um, he had told me the same thing. He was like, you should not be in your condition. You shouldn't be walking. Like you need to go to the ER. So I go to the ER and the nurse sees me and you know, she's like, they should have never like let you go home with this. Like we need to drain you right away. Um, <clears throat> so I had surgery. I had a um, pleurodesis and a thoracic thoracentesis. Like, like basically they drained uh, fluid from my left lung and then they sent it for testing. And then they, um, that's, and then May 14th, that's when they told me um, you have uh, stage four lung cancer. And I was like, okay, how is it that in February, you guys did a biopsy, I had nothing, you found nothing. And then like three months later, it's stage four lung cancer. And they're like, yes, you know, this, um, you just didn't fit the profile and we didn't, um, you know, even when I did um, uh, MRIs, like they had seen um, lesions in my bones. But again, like this was because the, the, the cancer had metastasized to my bones and to my brain, um, but, you know, it wasn't until they they sent out the, the fluid for testing that they saw all of this. And then they told me that the good news is that in the past five years or so, a lot of advances have been made in lung cancer research and that, you know, they're gonna send my fluid out for um, <clears throat> genomic testing. And that if I have um, a type of mutation, that there's um, targeted therapy that I can take. So, you know, I was like, of course, just shocked, but then also just like, crossing my fingers, hoping that I have this mutation so that I wouldn't have to do like chemotherapy. And then it turns out that I did have this, it's called ROS1 uh, genetic mutation, so that I take this uh, medication called Zalcori Prisotinib, and I take it twice a day, and basically it turns off the, the driver for the, that, that's signaling for the cancer cells to reproduce, and I've, I've been um, stable since. So, you know, fingers crossed I remain stable, but uh, yeah, it was just very, uh, very, very stressful time. And to go back to the whole tribulation of your diagnosis story, it it looks like to me you really suffered through racial disparities in healthcare and the fact that because you're black they assume TB of a cancer because you are black. They assume that your work um, making healthcare product gave you a condition which was not cancer. It was, it was to the point where, because my husband is white, and um, I was when I was admitted to the hospital, and you know I was there for almost three months. And there are things that I would ask them that they would just completely ignore and not even uh, deal with. Yeah. And then I would have to get my husband to, to, to ask them the same thing. And then they would take me seriously. Like it was, it was insane. It was, yeah. 
but it's so it's so bizarre because I would have thought because you were you you went private, didn't you? You had private yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah, I had I had my own private view. Yeah. And it was like I, I say that, you know, I had a lot of things against me. I had a lot of so first of all, like I'm a black yeah. woman who's anglophone in a francophone yeah. um, setting. Yeah. yeah, and I look and I look young too. I mean, I look, <laughs> you know, I, I look like not to toot my own horn or whatever, but you know, like I, I, I don't look my age. So yes, you, know, you do. You, you do look young, and yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so you know, they, I had all these things against me, and they just wouldn't. And actually, you know, like the um, my pulmonologist spent like after he diagnosed me, he spent two hours with us. Um, going through everything and, and apologized. He really he apologized for the way that I was treated because, you know, I think they, they had to admit that they dropped the ball. Yeah, and, they did. And it had a lot to do with, you know, with race, with gender, with, all, with language, with all of that. For, for you, Carly, how was the journey after diagnosis? Well, I am, um, so I actually went sort of private. So because based on that experience, I just knew that I couldn't deal with, with that, particularly, you know, having small children because yeah. of the wait times, trying to arrange childcare and things like that. I just didn't have the support. So I, I said, you know, I knew that my husband had health and, you know, private health insurance to work. And I said, oh no, I'm, I'll probably die on this system. I need to get out of it. <laughs> and, um, and I did, I, I, when I met my, my surgeon, um, you know, someone that I know and, and trust at the moment, he's, he's a great guy. He happened to do private and I said, oh, could, um, you know, I know my husband's got private insurance. Do you, please, do you do it? Because I didn't know, I never, I never used it before. And he said, oh yeah, I do, do. I'll get you in the clinic on Saturday. <laughs> so I, so I activated it right at that point. I, I called the insurance, I set it up, got all the referrals, that sort of a thing. Um, and I mean, that's been probably a godsend for me actually, because, um, uh, you know, like generally when, on the NHS, I'm not. I'm not going to say the NHS. The NHS is is good and it, it does its job. But I mean, I would be concerned as somebody with cancer, um, just about you know lifespan and, and that sort of a thing. Um, so, but I mean, I've been lucky in a way where, so you know, I've done my private appointments or what have you, and some so everything was pretty much covered at the beginning, like chemo, you know, surgery, radiotherapy, all that sort of stuff. Um, like, you know, cost-wise, the private insurance would pick that up and so on and so forth. But there have been things along the way that the private insurance, you know, wouldn't cover, what have mm -hmm. you. And, you know, I've been fortunate to, you know, go back on the NHS for that sort of a thing. Um, I think probably the challenges, though, would just be um, there's a bit of a postcode lottery with some of the NHS sort of things. So, is, yeah, we call um, it postcode lottery, actually. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things would be, um, so, I mean, like with genetic testing. So I didn't qualify for genetic testing um, because of the type of tumor that I had. Um, so I've been kind of fighting for that, and I still am actually fighting for it on the NHS. My insurance wouldn't cover it. Um, I would have to pay for it out of pocket, and I can't afford it at the moment. But um, anyway, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm fighting. I've tried for genetic testing in the borough that I live in. Um, that was sort of failed or what have you. So now I'm, I'm trying in a different... No, I'm trying the borough. Sorry, I take that back. I'm, I'm trying in the borough that I live in now to try and see if I can get genetic testing because there's one hospital... Sorry, in, sorry to interrupt, Carly, but I just yeah, yeah. saying that I find that absolutely ludicrous because like... Yeah, yeah, you know, it's ludicrous. Like, genetic testing is like saving my life. Like, yeah, I know. Not yeah. being genetically tested, like I wouldn't be taking this medication. 
And for yeah. you to not even know if you have a mutation or not because you're fighting, yeah. like, that's crazy. I mean, I don't fit the profile now, so obviously, but they don't know. I mean, obviously, they're taking a look. I fill out the paperwork anyway now, so they're taking a look at my family history, which are some cancers in and so on and so forth, so the different factors. But there's one hospital in the UK that I know of that will test any woman that is diagnosed with breast cancer under the age of 40. They will get genetic testing automatically, and I think that's probably going to roll out at some stage. I don't know when. I don't know if it'll roll out in my lifetime, but that... You know, that is in the work. So that's something that I'm fighting for. So that kind of is something that annoys me. But my insurance doesn't cover it because it's not like a preventative thing. It's more of like a seen as more of a prevention thing, but not necessarily like a, I don't know what they call it, some sort, some sort of excuse, whatever it might want to be. Um, and then the other thing is, I mean, where the NHS has been great is my insurance wouldn't cover a drug called Zometa. Um, and... Uh, yeah, they um, they wouldn't cover it in my borough, but because my oncologist works in another borough, um, they they actually cover that. So that's that's good or or what have you. I mean, I've got stories with that, but I won't go into it. But I think with um, you know, if I was an NHS patient for the whole throughout the whole cancer treatment, I would be in a situation where and I'll you know, I mean, people put up with it because it's it's it it save it helps them, doesn't it? But um. When it comes to things like, you know, you get your you get your letter or your appointment in the post. So then that's when you find out when your appointment is or what have you. And, and you know, just those different things like that, that kind of make life a bit more difficult or cancer experience more. You're always waiting. There's just so much control that you lose, I guess you could say. But for me, I think the diagnosis stage was, you know, it took a while. Um, but I'm lucky that I have private health insurance because I would be concerned if I didn't right now because um, obviously, you know, wait, because the cancer is it went through my lymph nodes and my bloodstream. Obviously, my biggest fear is secondary breast cancer. And for that, you just basically sit on the symptoms and wait for them to happen. And that's when you go in. So for me, it's a bit of a time bomb. <laughs> Uh, but I personally would love a scan just to know that, you know, nothing is there, but obviously what's there, not there today could, might not be there, you know, the next day. So there's no, you know, no telling in that sort of thing. But I think after the initial diagnosis in, in cancer treatment or what have you, then you're just kind of waiting around for it to happen. And I think some people have trouble where you go into the doctor, you, you tell them your symptoms and you can't get the appointment. I think that's a challenge on the NHS. Um, they don't take you seriously, similar, you know, similar to Angie's story. But then that's not for everybody, though. So there's no standards with that, I guess you could say. That's the challenge, I think. Um, yeah, definitely. And it it's, comes back to something I was talking about with one of the GP we interviewed because the Can Cancer Research UK went uh, to her practice and they basically told them that they were under-referring people. So mm -hmm. it was a thing that, okay, so all this doctor in the GP practice were like, okay, so we actually need to refer more, more patient because we're not referring patient enough. I mean, I think it, in my case, I'm, I'm lucky in the sense that my doctor took me seriously because yeah. I had just had a baby. <laughs> I was 38. Um, you know, I don't fit the profile or what have you. And I didn't fit the profile for the typical, you know, lump, you know, because it, it moved or what have you. So, I mean, I was, I was very lucky that she had referred me on, but some people would just be brushed off and, you know, similar to Angie, just kind of being brushed off. Um, but yeah, if they're, if they're undersubscribing, then please step that up doctors, please. I mean, <laughs> yeah. take people seriously, take it from, take them for the word. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt, you know, just like, just rule it out and then, you know, keep it moving.
definitely yeah. so so once um once you got diagnosed um and then how how long did you wait for you to sort of have a plan and start treatment uh because so you went so you you went mostly private and when the private insurance wouldn't cover wouldn't cover things then you would do it on the nhs if it was possible right but did right, it yeah. that you had um so was it seamless uh how was the transfer of information and things like that um, I mean, I think it, I mean, I think it was okay in, in regards to, I mean, luckily I was working with the, the secretary, so that was quite easy that way. So it was easier to go about some of that process. Um, you know, I work with my oncologist in a different way, more directly. So would you say that as a whole, your experience has been positive because you've, you've had a good team, like you have, you've had a very good relationship with the oncologist and you felt mm-hmm. very comfortable with him. Yeah. So I've got, so with my surgeon and my oncologist, um, I mean, there's something that I told my surgeon actually, today I met my surgeon, I brought my baby daughter in with me and, uh, you know, he just sort of got me because he knew that I had small children or what have you. Um, so he was very understanding, very caring and so on and so forth. And I've told him that, you know, in my life, there's only people that I've ever really trusted with my life would be obviously my mom. She gave birth to me, <laughs> my dad, but you never really sort of get to that stage. If, if you don't have, you know, a chronic disease or any situation in your life where you actually have to trust somebody with your life, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I've been very fortunate, you know, where I've, I've had a good relationship with my oncologist and my surgeon and they know that I'm going to ask questions. So I, you know, I keep up with things or what have you and they're okay to answer them. That's not a problem. They don't rush me along. They, they sort of answer the questions that I want or what have you. And I've always sort of brought in a bit of humor to my treatment as well. I think, um, you know, I told them, you know, if I'm going to know you for the rest of my life, which obviously I'm hoping is a long time, (laughs) that we might as well have fun while we're, you know, going about this journey, you know, because the last thing you want is someone that you don't trust or you don't like, you know, being in charge of your life, really. Um, so when that sort of control is taken away, I, I, I go with the attitude that I need to have the best experience possible. And I will be telling the jokes. Some of them will be nervous jokes. That's okay. I just need something to know that, you know, they actually care for me. And I, I definitely feel that with, with my treatment team at the moment, I'm both my surgeon and, and my oncologist, but I also expect that as well. Um, just because, you know, I hope for it to be a, a long relationship. And I've, like I said, I've never trusted anyone in my life before. So aside from my mom, thanks mom. <laughs> what about yeah. you, Angie? Yeah. I mean, you know, once, I finally got my diagnosis, then it was just like, okay, you know, um, VIP treatment. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, you know, luckily also I have um, private insurance and thank God for that because my, um, my treatment uh, costs about $17,000 a month yeah. that I have to take for the rest of my life. Um, in Switzerland, yeah, that, that, that's about 7,500 francs. And um, my oncologist, you know, he's, he's on top of it, you know, it's a research hospital and um, he, you know, listens to us and he, you know, we can see, we can email him with whatever questions. And when I went to New York um, after my diagnosis for, um, uh, for a holiday, you know, he was talking with um, the oncologist at um, Sloan, the Memorial Sloan Kettering in, in New York. And, um, 
worked with the doctors there so that I could get a second opinion and you know they're very um, receptive and then also for me I was lucky because I found a Facebook group um, called um, Ross One where the Ross Wonders <laughs> and it's about it's a group of about 500 plus of us uh, with the same exact type of um, lung cancers because our lung cancer is predominantly in people who are young non-smoking um, mostly female they're, they're male it's, it's maybe 60 I don't I don't know the exact percentage but more female than male um, but anyway it's very um, patient driven and because this drug is so new um, you know, like it's it's basically like we we ask each other questions and um, you know we share experiences and even I, I can just give you a, um, an example of um, a, a guy in our group and the group is from like people are from everywhere from South Africa from China from India the states um, Europe and a lot of the, the oncologists they don't really know the the research that's going on with our specific type of um, lung cancer. So we actually have to, um, you know, teach them or like kind of nudge them in that area. And there was one guy whose um, his sister um, was progressing under like the treatment wasn't working for her anymore. And her oncologist was just like, okay, we're going to stop the treatment and, you know, think about other options, but didn't um, provide any, anything else. And so he asked the group and the group got together and they, um, you know, they um, were able to like draft an email. He was able to draft an email from the questions. Um, and then like his insurance wasn't paying for the medication anymore. And he was able to get more medication from a woman who's sadly like her husband had passed away. And so she, you know, sent him the medication and like he presented all this to his doctor and his doctor was completely impressed and like finally took him seriously. Like, okay, wow, you have like a team of people behind you and you know and and now they have like a course of treatment but it's just to say that like now i think nowadays before like when people had cancer it was just like okay either it was a death diagnosis or just kind of like like carly said like a time a time bomb or just kind of like passively waiting for your doctors to tell you what to do and i think now with like research and now people are more aware they take, you know, a, a driver's seat and, you know, they, they take their lives into their own hands and they're like, okay, I need to, you know, if I'm trying to live, then I, I need to be as informed as possible and I need to give myself the best chance that I can get. And that's to be as educated as possible and, um, you know, find out what it is that, that you need to do. So, I mean, I'm now I'm, I'm, I'm happy with, um, of course, you know, nobody wants to be on the cancer team, but, you know, it's like, again, I'm happy with uh, the, the process, the progress, and um, where I'm at, and I think also, you know, like, like me and Carly doing our own podcast and trying to, like, bring awareness and educate um, other moms and caregivers and stuff, that's, that's basically, like, the, the wave, the future of, of, of where cancer is, is going, because they say, what's the statistic, one in two people? Are going to get cancer in their lifetime now so you know this is going to be a topic that a lot more people are going to have to get familiar with and i think i'm um, just adding to what you were saying angie um i think particularly as we're younger patients or what have you i mean we're, we're keeping up with the times aren't we <laughs> so we're um trying to be educated and informed i mean as 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 we would be um you know but um I've also had quite a bit of support actually from a group on Facebook called um, the Younger Breast Cancer Network. So it's YBCN. 
and it was founded by a lady probably about seven years ago um, and the group is just for younger folks um, that were diagnosed under the age, age of 45 with breast cancer and it's quite a big group now there must be about three to five k I don't know how many people in it or what have you but for me that I found it after diagnosis probably I wish I had found it sooner actually but I mean that for me just keeps me up to date with anything you know, like I might know something before my oncologist just because someone else has said it similar to you, Angie. So, you know, I'm, I don't do the, I don't spend my time doing the research, you know, in the background or what have you, but because of that group, I'm up with the time, so to speak. Um, so that's been really helpful. You have talked uh, about the challenges a little bit along the way from the, mainly for, for you ladies, seems that it was really the diagnosis sort of phase which didn't go smoothly at all um and and after that things has sort of gotten better but i would like to know sort of the impact on your life as mom as professionals i know you talked about it in one of your podcast episodes and i loved it so can you give us just a let's say just a smaller snippet into 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 how it was with the kids and like how do did you explain it or the impact on your like on your life um yeah i mean you go first andy this time you go (laughs) (laughs) um i was at first uh you know discussing with my husband you know should we even tell the kids because you know they were um four four and six at the time um and well last year and and at first, you know, I was tempted to just be like, oh, well, you know, they, they don't really understand what's going on. I mean, they know something's up because, you know, they come visit me um, every day after school. I'm in the hospital and my son's asking, you know, why I can't sleep home with him. And, um, you know, my and my daughter, um, our nanny actually was saying that, you know, she was really upset and she was saying, you know, something's going on and nobody's telling me what it is. And and it was just like really heartbreaking. So I was like, okay, I, um, you know, we... We have to be um, as honest as we can with them. They're, they're small kids, but they still they're still aware. So um, you know, basically, I told I told them that you know I have I have mommy has cancer, um, but she's taking medication and you know she's getting she's getting better. And and I asked them if they know what this means. And my daughter was like, Yeah, you have cancer, and it's my fault because I I gave it to you because you I had a cold and then I gave you my cold and your cold turned to pneumonia and the pneumonia turned to cancer. And I was like, wow, <laughs> like, you know, leave it to a six year old because you know, they're the center of their universe. Everything revolves around them. So she's like, for her to try to make a connection to how she could have given me the cancer was also really heartbreaking. But, um, you know, we were able to, um, I, you know, I told her, of course, like, no, this is not your fault. It has nothing to do with you. And, um, you know, I, we don't know why I got sick, but, you know, the main thing is that I'm getting better and I'm, um, I'm on medication and, you know, they go to, um, to art therapy and also, you know, my husband also um, went to a couple therapy sessions. And so, you know, we just, just to make sure that um, we're all okay, because it just was like really shocking for all of us. And then also, you know, having, uh, Carly and I talked about like mommy duties, you know, like all, just being like fatigued and tired and just, you know, life, the kids, like life goes on with kids, you know, they still want you to play with them. You still have to cook, you still have to clean, take them to school, do all these things. But, you know, when you don't have the energy or when you're like, you know, psychologically, it's, it, it can be difficult, but, um, you know, to have a strong support network 
which is another thing too, because, because both of us are expats and we don't have our immediate families around, you know, we have to lean on, um, on friends and find other um, support networks to, to help us when we just don't have the energy. So, but I, but I feel like I'm in a, a better place now. So, yeah. And how, how was it with work? Uh, so for me with work, um, I, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty bad because I thought this was like pre-diagnosis, you know, I, I was going to work with the oxygen tank on my back <laughs> and like being an English teacher, you know, having to talk all the time and everything. I was, I, I couldn't even complete sentences. So I was devising plans um, so that like my students would do most of the talking and um, that, you know, they do group work and stuff like that. But then I mean, obviously I, I, I had to stop working in the middle of it because um, yeah, it was just not, it was just not possible. Um, and then after the diagnosis, um, I just started, I picked up a couple of um, uh, consultant jobs, just like proofreading, editing, things like that for other organizations. Um, so I haven't gone back to the classroom uh, yet, and I don't know uh, when I'll go back to the classroom. So now it's just trying to figure out, you know, how to get um, a different stream of income or, you know, income from, from different ways, like online and working from home okay yeah. so you're sort of creating your new normal and sort of making it work for you yeah yeah what about you carly oh yeah i mean impact that cancer has i mean you know when you're when you're in treatment or what have you it, i think it plays a big impact in your life um you know just with the time that it takes or what have you so you know doing the chemotherapy thing every week for X number of weeks or three weeks, every three weeks for X number of weeks. Um, then going on to uh, like the radiotherapy or what have you, that was every day for I think 25 days or what have you. Um, and not necessarily taking much time to actually have it done, but just the whole process of getting there, waiting, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I feel like I've spent probably a lot of time, you know, doing various cancer related things, whether it be appointments or just appointments for other appointments or so on and so forth. Um, but I tried to really fit that into my children's life. So obviously I was um, on maternity leave when I was diagnosed or what have you. So I would do things like, you know, go to the park early so I wouldn't be surrounded by people, you know, lots of sick, ch you know, children in case I were to get sick or what have you. But I also did also carry on just going to play groups as well because that's what my children needed. That's what they did. I, I wanted them to have like consistency and, you know, I wanted them to see me doing the same things, you know, that we would be doing. Um, so with the children, because my youngest was nine, nine months or have, what have you, when I was like, no, she didn't understand it. So we didn't really have the cancer chat about what, you know, what was going on. She kind of had to learn how to go to sleep, you know, by other people putting her down and she didn't like that at first but she she realized at one stage that she didn't have a choice and I think because of that she actually became a better sleeper um, so there is a silver lining for everything and then with my sort of three and a half year old at that time just basically said that I was sick and um, you know I'd be away sometimes but I'm around but everything you know will be okay or what have you and tried to make um, like going to the hospital fun so you know there were times that children had to go to the hospital hospital with me or what have you and 
you know, luckily at, at the hospitals that are out, they do like a nice hot chocolate. So that really helped with my older one. Um, and, you know, just making, kind of making the most fun out of it. And at one stage, I think one of the radiologists gave them, you know, a stuffed toy and they thought they were great and they could sit in my bed and, you know, just that sort of a thing. Um, so trying to find the best throughout the Sorry, experience. Sorry um, to interrupt yeah. you. You were talking about making the hospital yeah, yeah. fun. Yeah. And I, I just remembered we had you to lost, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> no, we had to celebrate my daughter's sixth birthday at the hospital. And, <laughs> oh, no. and so my my husband like drew. Um, we had masks, and okay. he drew he drew like animal figures on the mask, and you know, oh, we gosh. Like, oh, a party <laughs> party like in the hospital, and then like the nurses and the doctors came and saying, and for them it was just like, oh, okay, cool, like birthday party in the hospital, but yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like doing these kind of things where, you know, kids find fun in, in basically anything. So. Yeah, like the kids find fun, and then you kind of have to make it fun as well, so even though I'm like, oh gosh, here I am, you know, you never, you can't always really... I didn't want to be the sort of person that would always show it. So I would when it was tough or what have you. But to be honest, I kept a lot of it behind closed doors and in regards to emotions and, and that sort of thing in front of the children. Because I think because my, my toddler was so young, she didn't really quite get it or what have you. But I just sort of, I wanted to be the sort of person that was like, yep, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to clean this house. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. You know, and people probably thought I was crazy, but I was like, nope not holding me back but anyway so it's um yeah so with the, with children I think Angie said it best actually where life goes on with children I mean you just have to keep going there is no you know if your child needs something you get it for them don't you Angie no matter how tired you are you're like and then I think at, at different stages though you have to realize what you can't do as well and that's where you know you do end up relying on other people and for me I'm, I'm not the sort of person that likes to ask for help I find that to be really hard um, but cancer taught me how to do that. <laughs> um, you know, and I really appreciate all the people that helped me. Obviously, being an expat, my family is not, you know, in the UK or what have you. Um, you know, the people in my area, they, they really helped me. And those are, I think that's a time when you find out who your, your good friends are. Um, and I'm actually lucky to say that, you know, all my people were there for me. So those people, I'll do anything for them. Because, <laughs> you know, they've done anything for me. Um, so I was really lucky in that area. Um, and then kind of going into like sort of work or what have you, I mean, I have some maternity leave, so it didn't really affect my work too much. I think I probably took maybe another month or so off after that. So it didn't really, really get into things or what have you. And I just kind of work, I mean, not as much as I used to. I'd like to get back into that though, but you know, I'm just sort of playing it all by ear and, and managing the childcare and, and that sort of a thing. But I'm probably ready to the stage to work a bit more. Um, you know, kind of get my life back on track, I, I should say. Um, and I, I've kind of kind of been learning as I go, you know, so a lot of my time was spent on cancer. There's still a bit of time where I go through peak periods, but I've kind of managed that and it all sort of balances out. So I think I'm, I think I'm on the other side, actually. I can't say that it's perfect all the time. There are tough times, but um, yeah, I think, I mean, especially just having Angie in my corner, <laughs> you know, we kind of um, chat with each other, what have you. So it makes life and in, in dealing with cancer a bit easier. Um, thank you, Angie. Uh, thank you, Carly. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very mindful of your time. Um, and we're like, yes, we've been here for 55 minutes. So just one last question. Yeah, sure, no problem. Um, I just would like to know what gives you hope now what gives you hope throughout the whole process um any last 
Uh, last thing you want to share with us? You want to tell maybe someone who's going through what you went through and you're still going through? Um, yeah, do you want me to go first, Angie? I'm happy yeah. to. Do you want me to? Yeah. I'll kind of wing it. Um, I think trust. I mean, trust is, or I guess I was going to talk about trust actually, but for hope or what have you, it's for me, it's all about trust. So it's trust in me, trust in myself, knowing my body um and sort of trust in the team and people that are that are surrounded by me um and you know i think being surrounded by a good team i feel like i have that and i'll um sort of hopefully progress things or what have you but i mean hope is hope is something that's amazing isn't it i mean i hope to be here forever <laughs> but um you know i think in the research i think a lot of a lot of work is happening in in research so you know thanks to all the doctors out there that are doing the research or what have you um, to find more drugs, to keep us going a bit longer, um, just different trials that they're running. I mean, that's my hope, actually. So I think my hope comes with money, I'm afraid. <laughs> you know, and if, you know, a lot of times you see uh, cancer research or other organizations raising money for cancer, what have you. If it's not your cause now, people, please make it your cause because you're keeping us going, you know. Please keep us going. Um, but I, I see a lot of hope in, in research or what have you. Um, so yeah, hope in, hope in people actually, hope in people that you trust, I guess you could say. Um, and I think top tips for people going through cancer treatment is, um, you know, it, it is hard. It is hard. And I think you kind of just have to look at things from take it day by day, see how you're getting on. And then, you know, maybe the next day you'll be okay. Maybe you won't, but I think you just have to have, have that trust in yourself to know when you need to slow down when you need to ask for help and then obviously just when when you just need to um you know stop thinking about cancer take a break from it and just sort of you know focus on something that you love focus on something that you enjoy um i know for myself at the moment right now i'm starting to do things um i think it must be a rebirth i don't know but i'm i'm doing things that i used to do as a child that i loved like you know i went ice skating the other day um so finding things that you just sort of really enjoy that are sort of not cancer focused, you know, whether it's music, I mean, music played a big part for me, um, you know, meeting with friends, family, finding a hobby, obviously you can't always leave the house and do various things or what have you, but there's a lot online these days. So get yourself the right support um, and, you know, surround yourself by the right people because those are your people, that's your tribe. And definitely just take it easy when your body tells you you need to. Um, that's that's my top tips, I guess. What about you, Angie? Um, yes, to piggyback on, on Carly, definitely uh, when what she says about research is so true. I mean, especially with lung cancer, because we have that stigma, the lung cancer community of, um, you know, the first thing they ask you, oh, lung cancer, oh, did you smoke? And it's like, it's, it's, ah, it's so annoying because it's like, you all you need is lungs to have lung cancer. You know, and there's, there's a growing population of people that have lung cancer that have never smoked. Um, and lung cancer, I, I guess, like in the States, it's the number one, um, you know, killer of, of cancers and the most underfunded, like with, for breast, prostate, everything combined, um, it's the number one killer. And so, you know, and in our case, the lung cancer community, you know, we, we really need um, research and funding. So um, as Carly's saying, you know, please, please, if you can, if you can, um, donate and support um you know people's lives are being helped and saved like that um i think also like for me 
you know, like what, what keeps me going are, are my, obviously my kids, you know, like when I was diagnosed, I was like, okay, like I'm going to be that statistic. I, I'm not going to, I didn't want to know what my prognosis was. I know it was very bad, but I'm just like, nope, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm too young. My kids are too young for me to go like this. Um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to fight with everything that I have and I'm going to um, educate myself and, um, you know, try and live as long as I can. And I think as far as the yeah, tips go, um, I read a really, really good book uh, called Radical Remission by Dr. Kelly Turner. And she talks about like the nine things that uh, people have in common, cancer patients have in common um, that have gone into radical remission. I mean, this is not necessarily to say that if you do all of these things, you know, you're going to be miraculously cured. But, you know, it's things also that you can just apply. You don't need to have cancer to apply these to your life. I, I, I tell people all the time, I guess, you know, they say I have like a terminal disease, but then we're all terminal. We're all going to die. We, we don't know when we're going to die. Like, yes, I have cancer. And, you know, my statistics say that, you know, I will probably die sooner than the average person my age, but you can get hit by a bus crossing the street tomorrow. I mean, not to sound, you know, doom and, and gloom, but it's just that, you know, we just basically have to live day by day and you don't know when your time comes. So, you know, um, cancer just kind of puts things more into perspective and you have more of a sense of urgency, but cancer or not, you know, you should be living your best life all the time. So, um, I would say for newly um, diagnosed uh, cancer patients, everything that Carly said, yes. Um, if you can read that book, um, Radical Remission, it talks about, um, you know, like uh, surrounding yourself with a tribe, um, you know, finding, like being passionate about something, um, something you love, um, you know, finding faith, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be God or, um, you know, but just, you know, having, finding a purpose, having a purpose. Um, you know, changing your, your diet in the sense that, you know, eating more organic and just being more aware and mindful of what, what you eat, um, exercise and all of that. And I mean, it's not to say that, you know, like I know people that are vegan that have colon cancer. So it's not to say that if you do all these things, you're not going to get cancer. But it's just to say that these are things that you should be doing anyway, regardless of the diagnosis or not. So, um, yeah, those are mine my tips. <laughs> thank you so very much. And um, really, thank you for your time and your generosity and your honesty. I really, really encourage everyone to go visit your podcast and listen to your stories in more depth because they, I think I feel like they can really help a lot of people, even those who are, who are not cancer patients who are not going through this, but who might have friends or family members or just for their own understanding of humanity and what some people go through. Um, thank you so much again. And I wish you all the very, very best. Yes, thank and thanks you. for having us. Thanks for thank having you. us on the show.